Eyes Eyes, the life of a long-term multitasker. This is my 1% growth series, where every day is a commitment to the compounding of the consistent unextraordinary, where every day is an opportunity to think, learn, do, and relate deeply, where every day is an opportunity to live the life of your ideal highest self. This series is a combination of my journals that I'm intentionally sharing with the world. A single day may not tell the whole story, but each day is a vital chapter within that story. All right, welcome back to another episode of the 1% Growth Series. Today, I'm not going to be going through a specific day, but I'm going to be going through a story that I wrote. All right. So this wasn't in my journal. This was something that I signed up for through the Charlotte Writers Club. And this was something that I wrote in a few hours for a open mic night that the Charlotte Writers Club was hosting for about 10 spots or so. So I ended up signing up for it the day before and not having any material that I wanted to share, or I'm, I'm sure I could have found something and edited stuff or whatever from my journals and whatnot, but I wanted to write something from scratch. And seeing as I had not had anything, uh, when I signed up, I was like, all right, this is a deadline, let's write it. And one of my friends, Adam, uh, was visiting from Houston that day or the next day. And so I was like, all right, let me write it. We can go there. He can, he can be a part of it. And I'll have someone that I know also be listening. And then we can talk about it afterwards. And so I wrote this. It was a 10-minute um, piece. So it's called Recess. This is a story of a young man with the context of his childhood self. This is a story of a seven-year-old boy casually at recess with other seven- and eight-year-old boys and girls. But on a very deep level, could this be the story of society? The earliest consistent memories of this young child begin at about six to seven years old. Maybe it's a slower developmental timeline than others, but he's oblivious to that. He's just worried about Spurs versus Nets in the NBA Finals and studying atlases, flags, and country capitals all day long. He moved to a new city during this age and had the opportunity to create a new identity for himself. Of course, new beginnings at age six was not what one normally equates at that point in someone's life. Nonetheless, whether he liked it or not, a new identity was starting to take shape. In a quick time frame, he appeared to show above average potential in certain areas and was recognized for that by his peers and teachers. He was chosen to a program called Enrichment or Gifted Education. What made him more gifted than others? What made him more enriched than others? Is comparing first and second grade children on this spectrum the right way to think about this? Again, these weren't thoughts that crossed his mind at the time. He was busy learning the Queen's Gambit and French Defense opening variations. 
He was looking forward to playing kickball during recess and daydreaming about kicking the winning runs in just as the recess whistle blew. Speaking of, what was this boy's recess thought process like? Would the more athletic kids want to play kickball today? Or was Foursquare the game of the day? Or would tetherball reign supreme? Or would he just escape it all and just feel like going on the swing set? Were any of his friends on the wall? Which meant that they didn't follow the rules at some point in the previous few days and it was the teacher's way of slightly punishing them. Was recess just play though? What were the undercurrents of that recess time block? This was an hour of essentially unstructured time. What activities or sports would seven and eight year old children engage in in this hour? Who are the decision makers? Someone had to make the decisions of what games or sports to play, right? How were those decision makers appointed? The way that this young boy saw it, you either had to be a vocal leader or an exemplary leader in the most technical sense, in that you were the cream of the crop athletically. The best was a combination of both. Was there a bit of jealousy and envy there from the boy? As the story goes, the leaders picked today as one of those kickball days. Okay, so now you had a sport or game decided upon and a self-organized hierarchy based on some leadership characteristics. Now you had to actually get into the game play. For that, teams needed to be created. How was that determined? Again, usually by those mutually agreed upon leaders who decided which game to play in the first place. The usual course of action here would be two captains of the two teams. So the seven and eight year old captains of the teams started selecting other seven and eight year olds they thought could give them the best chance of winning until there were no more players left to select. Was it right to go one by one until there was only one person left? Did someone have to be last? How did that last person who wasn't taken feel when literally everyone was taken before them? Were they hurt? Were they indifferent? Were they motivated to prove themselves? Or going deeper here, were they motivated to prove the opposing captain wrong? The captains took whoever they thought could help them the most to win the game. And in their mind, justifiably so. In marketing speak, it was their perceived value of another person in the context of this game. Was the young protagonist of the story an underdog, who wasn't perceived to be a top pick in the selection process, but outperformed that perceived value? Were these selections an accurate representation? What did they base it on? If there were previous games on previous days and months, there was experience of how effective someone was as a pitcher, outfielder, kicker, etc. These young, seven and eight-year-olds were building up a mental sample size and normalizing the results of everyone, at least as best as they could. Was there a bias? Of course. They probably remembered what happened the most recent time they played kickball or the first time they played kickball with a person. The rest of the times are kind of jumbled together. The more times they played, though, the better each of their mental models got. Now, what if we take a peek inside the brains of the captains. They had a responsibility to themselves and their freshly selected teammates of constructing a team that had the best chance to win. Based on their mental models, they needed a reliable pitcher, a sure-handed first baseman, quick and strong-armed outfielders, 
Maybe these thoughts went on in this young boy's head. But he had no idea of knowing if anyone else thought of these things. Either way, it didn't matter. Everyone just wanted to start playing, including the boy. With the game about to start, the teams themselves had to self-organize. What order would the team bat in? How was that determined? Usually, it was whoever ran up to the dugout line behind home plate first. And usually, the captain went first. This order that was set would be the order for the rest of the game. The children, now turned athletes during this recess hour, had to remember this order, at least vaguely, or just really remember who was in front of them. This ordering system wasn't perfect, and it was based on the honor code. Was that good enough? Who knows? In any case, though, the boy usually took his time to get in line. There was no rush. He was content being 6th or 7th out of 9 to 10 people on his team. He liked being undervalued publicly and then over-delivering on that public perception. As the game gets into full swing, certain people may separate themselves as contributing more on the offensive or defensive side of the innings. These experiences then slowly start replacing the then-most-recent memories of who is helping our team win. But is our team winning the goal here? I mean, of course, to win a game of kickball is the goal. But was that the only goal? Was that the only purpose? Underlying all this is this fact, that there are two teams whose objective it is to score more runs than the other team. This means that it pitted two teams against each other. Two parties against each other. Were they playing to win the game? Were they playing to have fun? Were they playing to create a connection with their classmates, whether on either team, or win, lose, or draw? Going deeper, were they competing against the other team? Or were they competing with their teammates? Was it competitive or collaborative? Underlying even this are the actual rules of the game. When the kids went from choosing the game to selecting captains to selecting teams to kicking off, the inherent understanding of everyone there was the understanding of the rules. And not just an understanding of the rules, but an adherence to them. But none of the 7 and 8 year olds questioned those rules. Well, why would they? Everyone knows the rules of pickball. And if you didn't, someone who did know them could quickly explain them. Simple enough. As we observe as adults, though, what questions can we ask about these rules that we didn't think about then? Were the rules of the game and the, concurrent, and the current participants implicitly discouraging people who weren't as athletic to join? Were they even discouraging 7- and 8-year-old girls from participating? Would changing the rules of kickball create a different hierarchy? Changing the rules of kickball might make it morph into an already existing sport, or changing the rules of kickball might make it morph into a sport that is further away from a reference point of any current sport. However, the kids in this story never even discussed the rules. They were assumed. Once established, they are as good as etched in stone. That seven-year-old boy didn't question the rules of the game then. Partly because no one else questioned them. Partly because that would be absurd. And partly because, well, he was seven years old. But having those kinds of literally unquestionable experiences show the importance of following rules. To always be within the guidelines of the rules. To never break the rules. 
Are these thought patterns the ones we want to be teaching our 7 and 8 year old selves? Isn't drawing a box and then telling yourself and others to think outside of that box a limiting, desultory practice? What if we just didn't draw that box in the first place? I'm not saying we change the rules of kickball, but it is a small case study early enough in this and many other 7-year-old seven-year-old boys and girls' lives that that type of thinking can impact how they subsequently think about everything else. The rules of the game dictate what is important. What unsaid rules are you following? So that was the piece that I wrote. I um, hope you enjoyed it. I'll probably be doing more of those. Um, but hopefully there was some food for thought there, some asked, some questions. Asked questions explicitly, some implicitly unasked questions that you can take home and think about on your jog, on your run, on your drive, while doing laundry, etc. But thank you. Hopefully that was insightful and thought-provoking. And I'll see you next time on Size Eyes. <laughs>